Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful John Wagoner. John, are you ready to do this? I am ready to do this, and this is the first time I have ever been introduced as strong and powerful. I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's do this. John is a nationally known financial journalist, having spent 25 years at USA Today, where he was twice nominated for a Pulitzer. He is the author of three books a frequent guest on TV, radio, podcasts, as well as a public speaker. I'm excited to have you on. John, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why it is you do what you do. Well, I, I live in uh, the leafy suburbs of Washington, D.C., actually in, in Virginia, and uh, I, I live with my, my wife and my dog, whose name is Rosie, and she's a treeing walker coonhound, and uh, she's a great dog. Uh, let's see. I went to school at Northeastern University in Boston. I grew up actually in the D.C. area. I'm about as close to a native D.C. person as there is alive. And uh, almost always writing. I'm either uh, uh, writing on my blog. I have a full-time position at Investment News as their senior mutual funds columnist. I've uh, done a fair amount of work for the Wall Street Journal, for Money Magazine, uh, Morningstar and uh, just about anybody else who, who writes about mutual funds. I, I'm a fund geek. I've been doing this since the uh, Cretaceous period, just about. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think that anybody who pays attention to the stock market has been noticing that we're hitting all-time highs and it does not seem to be any signs that the stock market's ever going to do anything but go up. Do you think that the stock market's only going to go up from here on out? I, w I would put good money that it will not just go up from here on out. I don't see anything happening immediately that would cause it to fall, but then again, nobody ever does. Right. Uh, I guess what I would say is, I mean, the best analogy I've heard is that uh, with prices at these levels, and we're talking about prices relative to earnings, right? It's it's not that you know a stock is a hundred dollars to two hundred dollars a share. It's it's what the share price is in relation to earnings. But at, at these levels, which is in the high 20s, um, 20 times earnings, um, high 20s times earnings, the problem is, I guess it's best described as driving 90 miles an hour on bald tires in the rain. And it doesn't mean you're gonna have an accident, but it certainly increases the likelihood that something's gonna go wrong. It doesn't mean you should sell everything, it just means that you should be wary of being caught up in the I guess in the moment as it were you know this is not the time when you should be you know mortgaging your house and and uh, you know, putting them into stock putting the money into stocks as sophisticated investors like so many of us are we know that we're supposed to supposed to be buying when things are low and selling when they're high and it's like you're talking about with the price to earning ratio at 20. We're going down the highway a million miles an hour. There's no signs that say that we're going to crash, but it's bound to happen at some point. Um, Absolutely. Are there any traditional indicators that you would look for over time that say, okay, PE, yes, this seems like it's getting a little bit high. Are there any other indicators that you would look to to say, okay, we're probably due for a correction at some point? Well, just by historical averages, we're, we're due for a correction. I, I don't believe we have had a three percent 
down day uh, in about two and a half years. And 3% down days are you know, really not all that unusual uh, in the great, great scheme of things. So this kind of low volatility is uh, kind of crazy. Some people have uh, described this as a melt-up market, where people finally say, you know, I've, I've held off for so long because, uh, you know, I got really badly burned in 2007, 2008, 2009. Now I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go jump in. And um, there does seem to be some of that, you know. The one thing I will say is that at the moment, anyway, companies are reporting good earnings. It is supported by earnings. Your hope as an investor by buying at this point is that earnings continue to rise so as to make PEs go down. And uh, it could happen. You know, and there are some things in the work, tax reform and uh, repatriation of overseas cash could could be one of those things. On the other hand, um, it often happens that these things go in the other direction. I guess another thing I'd look at is the dividend yield. Um, you, you could see dividends increasing and, and there are more uh, companies reporting dividend increases, but the dividend yield's a little below 2% now. You wanna look at that relative to the 10-year treasury yield for a while there. And this was an indicator that used to be huge, like even before I was born, was that you you would buy the uh, the the bond when it, its yield was higher than the the S and P five hundred yield and, and vice versa. This went out of favor somewhere like nineteen seventy three, and it didn't really happen again until um, until the depths of the Great Recession. Uh, it's now flipped. The ten uh, year yield is rising, and people ask me, so what's going to cause this to all fall apart. Probably what usually causes it all to fall apart, which is interest rates rise, generally due to nudging from the Fed, until such point as uh, they start to affect earnings and they start to affect you know stocks' relative attractiveness to bonds, and and that's when things kind of fall over. You look at the crash of '87. What was the proximate cause? I, I would argue it was rising interest rates and in, in the aggressive Fed. Got it. All right. Excellent. So. Being that you spend a lot of time researching mutual funds, and a mutual fund is a common investment found inside of uh, inside of all of our four hundred one ks, that and potentially mm-hmm. perhaps ETFs at some point. But anyway, is it possible that the stock market is being propped up, or the gains are being increased by all the money? on a monthly basis flowing into large cap mutual funds, S&P 500 mutual funds by people making 401k contributions. That's certainly some of it. However, if you uh, look at the stats, the flows into funds has not been as as wacky as as you might think. Um, At at this point in the market, particularly, uh, you know, with the market up so much last year, 22%, which is just, you know, gangbusters. And with uh, international stocks up even more, um, one of the things that has consistently surprised me about this market is, is that, um, by and large, more money has been flowing into bond funds than has been flowing into uh, stock mutual funds. And you might ask me why this is, and I'll tell you. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know who's pouring all this money into stock funds. And one of the things that's really peculiar, um, if you look at the... Uh, long-term flows is that people have actually been pulling money out of U.S. stock funds uh, really for the past five years on average. And what uh, what they have been doing is putting a lot of money into international stock funds. So just last 
week, for example, so the week of the ending the 17th, according to uh, the funds trade group, uh, investors put 1.7 billion into uh, uh, domestic stock funds, which is you know a billion dollars a lot of money. Uh, they put 10 billion into uh, world stock funds, and into uh, bond bond funds they put 9 billion into it. So you have one yeah one billion into U.S. stock funds, 9 billion into bond funds, and you've seen that every week. The week the previous week it was 3.6 billion into domestic, 18.9 billion into bond funds. Go figure. And before that, I mean, just not to get through too many numbers, but uh, the first of the year, the first uh, number of this year, they yanked $22 billion out of U.S. stock funds. They put $1 billion into international funds, another $7 billion into bond funds. Bonds have been a dreadful investment for the past year. Maybe they're buying low and selling high. I, I don't know. But I guess if I were to look for who's pumping up the market, I would say it's probably... Um, big institutional money, not necessarily hedge funds, but pension funds, other kind of non-mutual fund money. Mutual fund investors have been behaving incredibly responsibly. Interesting. Where where can people find that information that you were just referencing about the money flowing in? Sure. That's uh, www.ici.org. You look under statistics. ICI.org. Uh, yeah, ICI. Uh, that's for the Investment Company Institute. And uh, you look at combined, this is estimated, this is mutual funds and ETFs. So it's the whole enchilada pretty much. Last year, uh, I, I don't have that number at my fingertips, um, there was far more money went into international funds than into U.S. stock funds. So if you're looking for total craziness, it doesn't seem to be from, uh, from U.S. mutual fund investors. Now it could be overseas investors, it could be pension funds, it could be could be hedge funds, but uh, I'm just not seeing the wackies. You know, there are other areas where there's plenty of wackiness around. You know, Bitcoin is, is one of them, but uh, and and the Fang stocks are, are you know kind of out of control. But unlike the uh, the 1999 tech bubble, the stocks that are doing really really well in the tech sector are doing well because they're doing really, really well. You know, if you look at Apple and Facebook and Google, they're making tons of money. Right. And it's not like pets.com, which, <laughs> you know, had had no earnings and had, you know, nothing but a, you know, cute little sock puppet. Um, these are, these are real businesses. Got it. Well, that is excellent information. Something that I'm, I'm 39 years old and I don't <laughs> really recall ever having serious conversations or concerns about inflation. Can you mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, please? Sure. Well, I, as, I, as I mentioned before, I was born in the, uh, in the Cretaceous period. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 61 years old. And so I, I grew up in, in the 70s. Inflation uh, was rampant. And that was sparked by two things. One was uh, the Arab oil embargo. So big component of inflation in the consumer price index is uh, energy and uh, you know I remember having to wait three hours to get four gallons of gas and so they, you know, they had to ration it. it, it was a big thing, prices soared so that, that drove the consumer price index up and then again the other thing was that we had a Federal Reserve that had a very accommodative, to put it mildly, uh, monetary policy so 
you get you need two things for inflation. It's very unusual. The air boil embargo is very unusual. We have this one commodity that like grips the country. And the country actually has adjusted quite well. We've become much more energy efficient. We are now the largest non-OPEC oil producer in the world um, and have been for the past two or three years. So we're pretty much energy efficient these days. We could, we could probably withstand another oil embargo. But in a classic wage price spiral, what happens is prices go up, unemployment is very low, so workers can go to their bosses and say, you gotta give me a raise because I'm getting killed by the price of gas, the price of sugar, the price of whatever. And the bosses say, well, yeah, because we don't have anybody else who can fill your job. Those two things have to be together, okay? You can't have a good wage price spiral without a rise in wages. What's the one thing that's been missing for the last decade in this country? Rising wages. Uh, when you have high unemployment, your boss is going to say, "Hey, you're lucky. You're lucky you have a job." Right. right? And in fact, uh, you know, you're so lucky you have a job. We're going to we're going to eliminate some benefits, and we're going to uh, you know, maybe take away your 401k matching or hike your uh, you know cost of your insurance. And in fact, it, it, you're going to be working for less each year. I think that's pretty much how employers looked at employees for the last decade. You know, you're you're like the the city bus. You know, there's another one coming around every ten minutes. You know, if you don't you don't want this job, uh, you know, I'll be glad to find somebody. I can probably find somebody who can do it cheaper. As one guy said to me, there comes a point in the labor cycle where you need ten employees who can count to ten, and you only have eight. And pretty soon you're going to have to start raising wages to find, you know, two more guys who can who can uh, count to ten. Are we at that yet? I don't know. Um, we're close. The the classic level is uh, below five percent. It's been below five percent for some time now, and I believe, and I'll check this. I believe we're at about four point two percent, which is typically, you know, classically where. Um, inflation starts 4.1 percent as of october so we're getting there uh i think the only thing that is keeping wages low is um two things one of which we're still competing with the rest of the world for labor so if a company can outsource things to anywhere uh they're probably going to do it and and the other thing is is that technology is, is kind of a um it's a disruptive force, but it's also a force of uh, compressing wages and eliminating jobs. So for a lot of people, and this is going to get worse, you know, for a lot of people, you know, the good paying jobs or at least decently paying jobs uh, involve driving, right? Involve taking something from point A to point B. Those people should be kind of worried about self-driving cars, right? Uh, you know, and so all the, you know, pharmacists, for example, you know, which is a hard job. You have to go to college for four years for it, but probably a lot of those jobs are going to be automated uh, in the next couple of years because if you, you know, if you need 25 amoxicillin, you know, you probably can design a machine that will push out 25 amoxicillin and give it to you. That's the deflationary part of it. In a way, we're kind of like the way things were in in the Gilded Age, and and this is not an inequality pitch, but this is simply that um, if you were a robber baron worth his salt back in the uh, 19th century, how did you get rich? Well, you pushed your prices down, say by 
amount of freight that you could carry or something like that until you drove the other guy out of business and then you bought it bought his you know whatever he had left well that's kind of the amazon model isn't it um that's kind of the model for uber that's kind of the model for a lot of these tech companies which is drive down prices drive down prices drive the other guy out of business and then you have monopoly or at least a you know stranglehold on on uh on that line of business and i think that's kind of the silicon valley model um and it, unfortunately it seems to fall hardest on people who uh drive for a living people with tasks that are easily automated or uh you know somehow disrupted so those are the two things now if if at some point you could have you know people are, are tired clearly i think of, of not getting raises and uh not seeing their incomes rise sooner or later this translates into you know political unrest but uh it it can also resolve itself simply by companies giving their their workers more wages let's hope that's how it works uh if it does though that is mildly inflationary that will prompt the fed to uh raise interest rates a bit more to try to cool things off you know i don't i don't think inflation's going to soar to 70th levels back when you know the treasury bill was at 15% which is just nuts um but probably that it will rise and sooner or later that pressure you know if if you're a Walmart and you have to pay your workers more that's an added expense every year right right uh that's that's going to cut into your earnings so as we were talking about before suddenly we'll start to see earnings you know suddenly we'll, we'll see them kind of gradually flatten and that will mean more disappointments which will probably lead to lower prices someday got it there's a lot of factors at play to pay attention to john a lot yeah. of things to pay attention to. <laughs> a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. Yes. So John Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? All right. My difference-making tip is you can't control what the capital markets are going to give you. That's the one thing that everybody wants to control, but you and I can yell at the stock market all we want, and the stock market doesn't care. You can control your costs, what you pay to invest, so look for low cost funds, low cost brokers or no cost brokers and you control control to some extent how much taxes you pay on that. If you control costs and you control taxes, you invest regularly, you're doing all you humanly can <laughs> to get your best returns. The rest is kind of up up to those wacky markets and uh you can't control that so why try? Keep your costs low, keep your taxes low. And um, if you're really, 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 really worried about the market, raise some cash until you know you don't wake up every 20 minutes with your heart pounding. Well, that is great stuff. That definitely warrants a come on. Come on. So we appreciate right. that. I think that sometimes, and when I say sometimes, I mean I think most of the time, good common sense advice is is the best advice to follow. And controlling costs, being cognizant of how much you're paying controlling your taxes as as best you can um those are all the things that like you said that we really have control over and that's stuff we should focus on so thank you for that sure. well john um where can savage nation learn more about you and your work well uh i write for investment news which is at investmentnews.com uh we're at a paywall but you can usually get about 10 or so articles a month uh so uh on that i also have a blog john m as in mary not my middle initial wagoner w a g g o n e r at wordpress.com and uh it's an unusual spelling but it's been in the family for years <laughs> and and those are the two main main places you can find me these days excellent 
Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show John your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Thank you again, John. Thank you, George. A really real pleasure. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!